This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is part eight of our summer series, Growing Together in God's Household. Well, with the Olympics coming up, I've been thinking about past Olympics and was remembering uh, in 2008, the Beijing Olympics, Michael Phelps, who was a swimmer, set a record for the most gold medals of any athlete in any sport ever in the Olympics. He had eight gold medals in one Olympics. And there was some talk leading up to the Olympics. Can he do it? Yes, we think he can. It's, he actually has a shot. He really could do this. It's not a, it's not a long shot. Uh, but one of the races was particularly fascinating to watch. I think it was the 100-meter butterfly. I'm not sure. But it was a sprint. And towards the end of the race, and it's a sprint, so you don't have a lot of time to, to make up ground or, or water if you're behind. He was behind by about a body length. And in about three strokes, I mean, you're watching this and you're thinking, that is superhuman. It is unnatural. Wow. In about three strokes, he powers through, he perseveres to the wall, and in a photo finish, he actually gets the gold. In a race that it really looked like he was going to lose, he in fact ended up winning. And it was one of the most amazing displays of athletic endurance, all the way to the finish, not giving up, even when it seemed like he was down. And if I remember correctly, the guy who was leading was in the lane right next to him. So as a swimmer, he was probably aware about how far behind he was, and he did not give up. It was incredible. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about perseverance, fighting the good fight of the faith all the way to the end to the finish. Now, I know in your bulletin it says faithfulness. Yes, that happens sometimes. Uh, It's changed. So cross out faithfulness. You can write in perseverance. Or you can just sit there and listen like most of you do anyway. Um, Now, if I'm honest, I did struggle a little bit on landing exactly what to preach on here because uh, this this, uh, passage of the end of Timothy is not exactly clear structure. In fact, when I was reading one of the commentaries, this is what it said of this section. The, The heading was miscellaneous injunctions. And, and under it, the first sentence, the section concluding the epistle has no clear sequence of thought. And I thought to myself, amen. <laughs> so there's a lot here that's rich and that's good. And I've decided we're going to focus on perseverance. The, the virtue of perseverance is one of the most important and key virtues in the Christian life. And in many other places in the scriptures, it is described as a race. So when Paul is writing to the Galatians, he says, look, you were running well. Who cut in on you? Who was hindering you from running and finishing the race? Or to the Corinthians, he says, in a race, all the runners run to get the prize. Run like that, as hard as you can, as fast as you can. Or Jesus, in Matthew 24, at the end uh, of the gospel, when he's talking about the end of, of time, he said, in those days, lawlessness will increase. And the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or, in the other letter to Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, which are some of the last words that Paul penned, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but to all who long for his appearing. So perseverance, one of the key virtues of the Christian life. 
And the frequent call that we find in the scriptures to persevere, to be steadfast, to endure, to keep going, uh, it's there because in the race is also the very real and present temptation to give up. To say, oh, the road is too long. I, I want to make it to the end, but I just don't know if I've got the gas. I'm weary. Or to say, the road is too bumpy. I, I, after struggling with this sin again or this particular weakness again and again and again, I'm just wondering, will, will it ever change? I want to give up. And the call to persevere would be challenging enough all on its own because of the length of the road and the bumps in the road. And yet to add to that, we also have an adversary, the devil, who is purposely trying to lay snares and traps in our way to derail us, to get us off the path, or to keep us from running with full endurance, the race set before us. And in this chapter here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul lays out just a few of these diabolical distractions. So if you want to turn in your bulletin or your Bible to 1 Timothy 6, there in verse 3, he says, anyone teaching a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying false teaching. And this is a theme that we've seen all throughout this sermon series as we've been studying the book of Timothy. Paul is warning Timothy, who is a young pastor, saying, watch out for false teachers, watch out for false teaching. Because here's the thing with false teaching. There's no one false teaching. And yet there is only one true teaching, that which accords with the words of Jesus Christ. So if you're thinking about a compass, if you want to go in a certain direction, there's only one point on the compass that's the right one in 359 ways to go wrong. So Paul is saying, watch out for the distraction of false teaching. There's a huge emphasis in this letter. And he says the way to do that is to stick to the doctrine that agrees with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here he's probably referring to both the actual words of Jesus, his teachings that we have recorded in the Gospels. And he is also referring to the teaching of the apostles. So the teaching, the words about Jesus that we now have in the rest of the New Testament. So the Gospels and the New Testament. And it's likely that at this time, Paul was already aware of at least a few of the Gospels having been written. We know from the book of Acts that he was good friends with Luke. They traveled together for a while. Luke wrote one of the Gospels, and even last week in 1 Timothy 5, we saw Paul quoting directly word for word a phrase out of Luke's Gospel. So he's referring to the words of Jesus, the actual teachings of Jesus, the Gospels. But he's also saying, and the words about Jesus, the teachings of the apostles, those who walked with Jesus, who sat under Jesus' teaching for three years, day in and day out, and had absorbed his teaching. He's saying, stay to the words and the teachings of Jesus. False teaching is one of those distractions that would derail us and knock us out of the race. Verse 4, he describes more the false teachers and what they're like. He says, they're puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce envy and division slander or gossip, and then this atmosphere of suspicion, right? And you've been in those conversations where 
You're not actually talking about anything because you spend all of your time quarreling about the words, like trying to lay the ground rules of the conversation and, and define everything. And, and the conversation goes nowhere. It's death by qualification. It's death by definition because you're quarreling about words, about how are we going to talk about the thing? And you never actually talk about the thing itself. And he's saying quarrels about words and those who are divisive, stay away from them. I remember taking a group of students on a missions trip to Pittsburgh and uh, we were there being hosted by a, a priest and his wife who are sister and brother partners with us in the work. They're not brother and sister of each other. They're to us, brothers and sisters working in the inner city in Pittsburgh. And at one evening, just around dinner, the, the conversation around church splits had come up. Uh, and there were a number of our students with us there who had gone through really painful and, and hurtful division in the church. Some had gone through the, the splits that we've experienced here at Resurrection, but there were others who were from other churches who had spent time in other churches. And I was astonished going around the room to hear how many of these kids had actually seen this kind of division and controversy rip apart a church and how deeply it affected their faith. How hard it was for them walking away from that to make sense of, of church and these people who, who claim that love is our creed. Well, I think Jesus would say to us, to us, look, in my church, you've got the best of the best. You have the worst of the worst and everything in between. And it's always been that way. So don't be surprised that these things happen. Uh, but stay away from those who are divisive and don't let that be what knocks you out of the race. Then in verses six to 10, he, he lays out another distraction. He spends a good bit of time with this one. He talks about money. And he says, money and the love of money, right? Verse 10 is often misquoted, saying that money is the root of all evil. Actually, Paul says, no, it's the love of money. Or as he describes it, this craving. That's what's actually the root of all kinds of evils. Uh, there was Nelson Rockefeller, who was one of the most wealthy men of his time. An interview, or a, a reporter asked him in an interview, how much money would you need to live comfortably? And he said, just a little bit more than I have right now. That was his answer. And I, I think we tend to think, well, I'm not greedy because I'm not rich. You have to be rich in order to be greedy. But, but actually that mentality of, if I had just a little bit more, or if I had just that one thing over there, it's the same mentality. You can be poor and greedy, or you can be rich and greedy. The difference is the rich person actually has money, but the heart is the same. There's this craving and this, this idea that that is what will complete my life. That thing is what will make me truly happy. And Paul is saying here in verse six, no, 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 godliness with contentment. That's great gain. That's true happiness. For we brought nothing into the world, he says in verse 7, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Jesus said the same thing. He said, look, the pagans run after what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? He said, your Father in heaven knows that you need these things, and you will have them. So the challenge for us, I think, is to believe, will we really have our daily needs net? daily needs met by the Lord, but also the challenge for us, are food and clothing really enough for us to call our daily needs? Or don't we sometimes throw other things in there and say, but I need that too. And do we hear this word to say, 
No, your, your needs are food and clothing. If you have that, you'll be content. And he uses really strong language to warn against the love of money. He says, those who fall into this temptation, this desire to be rich, that's a snare that leads them into senseless and harmful desires, plunging people into ruin and even destruction. They're wandering from the faith, and it's leading to the destruction of their faith. They're walking away from the race. They're giving up on the race. And that word, their destruction, has this idea of like a a ship out on the ocean actually sinking to its destruction and never coming back. So that's why he uses really strong language to warn against the love of money. Um, The reason that money is such a danger to love it is, uh, you know, Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You can't love money and love God. The, The two masters are incompatible and inconsistent with each other because money will say to you, serve me and I will make you happy. And God is saying, no, 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 serve me only and I will teach you the true nature of happiness. Money says to us, oh, if you serve me, I will give you pleasure. I will get you ease and comfort but you'll also need to work more and and really hard, and you'll need to make decisions based around me, and really you won't have any time for God. That's what money is saying to us, and and God is saying, and this is what Paul is saying, I'm just paraphrasing verses 17 to 19 here, God is saying, look, riches come and go. Don't work for something so unstable. I will give you plenty to enjoy. Don't, Don't worry about that. Your life will be good, trust me. If you have a generous heart, and you do not love money, but you can easily part with a dollar and share with those who are in need, then you will understand and grab hold of this life that is truly life. The danger with the love of money is it does make us look around and and say, ah, this race that I'm running, I'm not sure it's the race that I want want to be running. It seems like this little shiny thing over here would, would be a nice detour. Maybe I'll spend a little time there. Paul is saying, don't let that be a distraction. Because greed breeds discontent. That's what he's saying. And discontent, this feeling of of restless unhappiness, of I just don't like my life, that's like molasses in our bones. And it leads us to slow down or give up on the race. Though it's true that there are other things besides money uh, and the love of money that we can also, uh, that will also lead us to this feeling of discontent. Uh, So perhaps it's power for you. Maybe you don't, uh, maybe you're not tempted by the love of money, but you want for other people to do what you say, or you love to influence others, and you love to have control over things. And again, power, like money, in and of itself is not a bad thing, but when it's a craving, when it's a need, that's when it becomes demonic and dangerous. Or, or fame, recognition. And we, we come to a place where we think, ah, what I need to be happy and to be content is for a little bit more recognition from the people in my life. I don't need to be like nationally famous, but, but I want people to really honor and respect me. And I want to be known for what I'm doing. And again, affirmation, being known for what you do, th- those are good things. It's when it subtly crosses that line to craving. The sense of I need to have that. My value rests on that. If I don't have that, I am discontent. I'm not satisfied with my life if I'm not receiving praise and recognition and honor from others all the time. That's when you know you've crossed that line is when it has that, I've got to have that. I'm discontent without it. So false teaching, 
unnecessary controversies over words, the love of money or the love of power or fame or anything else that makes us discontent. These are some of those external pressures that would derail us or keep us from finishing the race, cause us to drop out. So Proverbs says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, meaning be intentional about the life you're living. Then all of your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, but turn your foot away from evil. In other words, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our ears also on Jesus and his words, and let us swerve from every distraction. But sometimes the greatest threat to staying in the race or to keeping going in the race is not so much the external distractions, but it's the internal voice. That this is too hard. I just can't keep doing this. I want to give up. I don't want to keep going. Or perhaps for some, it's not that big, that massive, like I'm going to totally chuck the faith. I, I want to give up completely. But it's just this feeling of weariness. This road is long, and I, I just don't know that I have the energy to make it. I remember, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, I was thinking about that verse that says, you will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not grow faint. You will soar on wings like eagles. I was like, Lord, I'm not really feeling that right now. I, I trust that. I, I believe that. But I feel weary. I don't feel not weary. I feel tired. I'm not sure that I've got energy. And it was in that moment that the Lord said, nah, but your story's not over yet. Keep going. It, this verse doesn't mean you will feel that way always, all the time, every day. But in the end, you will look back and you will say, the Lord sustained me. He sustained me. And at the end of this journey, there's this call to eternal life. And he says, in that place, you will know what it means to walk and not be weary, to run and not grow faint, and to soar on wings like eagles. But when we're in that moment of either weariness, tiresome, or when it is the bigger picture, I, I think I'm contemplating leaving the race altogether. I think I'm going to give up. It's in that place that we need words of encouragement. And so Paul gives us that here in verses 11 through 14. He says, for you, O man of God, woman of God, child of God, flee those distractions and pursue instead the virtues and he doesn't list all of the virtues, but he, he gives us a taste here. He says, pursue righteousness or right living. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Do not give up. Take hold and do not let go. I love that phrase. Take hold of the eternal life to which you're called. And do not let go. Like when you're water skiing and you're holding onto that rope. Like, I'm not letting go of this thing. Take hold and do not let go. Fast forwarding to verse 14. And keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying there is a finish line. When Jesus comes back and he will be revealed for all the world to see that all of your struggling, all of your toil, all of your persevering, all of your quiet, I do this for the love of you, Lord, in the silent, in the dark that no one else sees, it will be seen, it will be made known. It will be noted. The Lord sees our struggles. And every time we choose to persevere, that's going to be shown on that day when all things are revealed. So he says, keep this command all the way unstained to the very finish. Just like Michael Phelps 
right, who, who gave every last ounce of strength to hit that wall and to get there first. Uh, the word for fight, the good fight of the faith, is, is that word agonizo that we saw a couple uh, weeks ago in chapter 4 that has the sense of an athlete struggling with every last ounce of strength to finish. Uh, or in basketball, you would say, he left it all out on the court. And I don't know why, but with swimming, just to say he left it all in the pool just doesn't have quite the same effect. <laughs> it, I don't know why, but it just sounds a little bit uh, sketchy or inappropriate. But moving on from that. But he's drawing our attention to the fact that this is a fight. It is a struggle. I remember when I was reading uh, in, in Matthew a while ago, and a verse that I'd read many times before, but it just jumped out and it hit me. Jesus said, the way to life is hard. I'm just like, yeah, yes, it is hard. It is not easy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is hard. And similarly, another passage that I, that I came upon in, in Acts 14, Paul is uh, talking to the church there in Lystra, and he's, it says he's encouraging them and strengthening their souls to continue in the faith, to persevere. And he's saying that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And sometimes it's just good to be reminded of that. Sometimes that's actually the encouragement. You'd think that would not be encouragement. Hey, enter the, the narrow way because it's really hard. But it is encouraging when it's hard and somebody's saying, yep, that's how it's supposed to be. Don't be surprised by that. And instead, let that be your encouragement to say, yet again, one more time, Jesus, give me strength. I want to persevere. I don't want to give up. I can't do this on my own. Yes, it's hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it. That word for good, fighting the good fight, could also be translated noble or beautiful. Fight the noble fight. Fight the beautiful fight. Live the beautiful life. And of course, that doesn't mean it will be free from trial. I mean, far from it, right? That's what we're saying. But, there, but there's beauty in that. There's a nobility in those who fight, especially in the midst of suffering and trial. And we fight, we fight in the name of Jesus, and we fight in prayer. That's how we fight. Those are our weapons. And when the trial is difficult and the thought is coming, I, I don't know if I can keep going. I either want to completely give up or I just don't know if I got the gas, the energy to finish it out. Then all I have to say and all that I can say is fly to the cross. Go to the cross. Pray, imagining that you are at the feet of the cross. When you're in your room and the door is closed, in your imagination, imagine that he is there and that you are seeing him on the cross, giving his all, his last strength for the love of you. That's why I like to pray with the crucifix. It helps me uh, concentrate and, and be very aware of that reality that it's only at the foot of the cross that we can receive the strength to endure. Or you can come. Our chapel is open 24 hours a day. When, when the weight is being felt, when the race is seeming especially long, come to the chapel. Sit between the altar. Lay hold. Paul says, grab hold of eternal life. Well, you can start by grabbing hold of the, of the cross. Many tears have been shed at the foot of that cross. Many laments have been poured out. Many mournings and cries for mercy have been prayed at the foot of that cross. It is a sacred and precious place for us. Fly to the cross. 
Fasten your heart and your mind to the cross of Jesus. Join your suffering to his suffering so that you can receive from him the perseverance that you need. Because here is why it's only at the foot of the cross that this makes sense. Because Jesus has done it first. He fought the good fight first. As Paul says, Timothy, you made the good confession. You did that, but so did Jesus. He made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's saying before Pilate, in the moment of his trial and crucifixion, Jesus was put to the test. And we can never forget that for Jesus being fully man, he endured the same questions and the same struggle to persevere that you and I have. Being God did not somehow give him a free pass from those struggles and feeling the reality of those struggles. He really had to wrestle. He really had to fight. There was no free pass. And yes, it was the physical torture, but even more than that, there was an inner spiritual turmoil and a weight and a burden that you and I cannot fathom. And any trial that you and I ever experience is not comparable. It's not anything like the suffering that he has gone through. So this is this is to say he's gone through much worse. And in that place, he could have said, I'm done, I give up. He could have said, this is too much, I, I can't make it to the end. Call the angels, send the legions, and take me down from the cross. He had the authority to do that. He also had the right to do that if he wanted. The only thing that kept him there to persevere was his knowledge and belief that what he was doing was to save the world. And it was the only way to save the world. And so thanks be to God, he did persevere. He finished his fight all the way to the finish line. And if he hadn't, there would be no eternal life for you and me. When Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, that would not be possible if Jesus had not finished his race. So we thank God for that. We also thank God that more than being the finisher of the race and the one who goes before us, he now, by the power of the Spirit in each of us and every one of us who believes, he says, and now I'm in you to fight the fight all over again. Because any trial that you're facing that you cannot handle on your own, he's saying, I'm in you to fight that fight for you. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to me. And what you need, and this is why you come to the cross, is because you have to ask for the grace to persevere. Ask for the faith to see all the way to the finish line. So at the end, Paul says, grace be with you. It's the very last thing he says to Timothy. It's also the very first thing he says. He introduces himself. Hey, I'm Paul. Grace to you. First and last word is always grace. And this is not just some cute spiritual salutation. Paul is saying, grace be with you because you're going to need it. Grace be with you because there's no other way. Grace be with you, but grace is with you. You have that grace. And grace is simply the undeserved gifts of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And in this instance, it's the grace to persevere. The grace to have that faith to say, I know there's a finish line, and that if I keep going, I will get there someday. May God give us the grace to see the finish line. And whether it's weariness, I'm just not sure I've got the gas, whether it's, no, I'm actually struggling whether or not I'm going to stay in the race at all, fly to the cross, ask for that gift and that grace, and for Jesus to fight the fight within you that you cannot fight on your own. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.